You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, we've got Cage Baker and Madeline Robbins here. They both read some really fine work. And one of the things that strikes me is that um, even though it doesn't, in many ways, it doesn't sound like you're both really creating worlds out of whole cloth for the reader from the first word. And Cage, you, you have a particularly interesting task because you've got to create worlds for a reader who is not really experienced in reading. So could you talk about that? Well, I actually wrote it for a little girl who is a reader. Oh, okay. In fact, her, on her iPod, she has all the novels of Jane Austen. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, wow. Um, but she wasn't, uh, wasn't that far advanced at the time. Um, I basically was putting together the story out of local legend because there was once um, a town laid out in the dunes that suffered a catastrophe and vanished, um, and a big hotel that was built and then abandoned when the sand uh, blew the foundation out from under it. And um, it's interesting, every winter, um, every time there's a bad winter storm and we get enough winds moving the dunes, it'll uncover old um, rusted skeletons of people's Model Ts that they drove out of the dunes trying to find their lots and, and they got stuck in the sand and the cars got left behind. Um, so I incorporated a little of that. Is this down in Pismo? Yes, this is. Well, it's, it's south of Pismo, um, just south of Oceano. It was. It was. It was to be called Le Grand. Hmm. Yes, it's also. It's also. If you saw the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie, um, the scene where Jack Sparrow is being redeemed from Davy Jones's locker, not the flat plane where all the little crabs are, but when it comes up onto a real beach. That's where Legrand was. And in fact, some of the scenes on the beach, if you had really good eyes, you could see my house up the coast. (laughs) (laughs) But in any case, um, so this is a real area. And the child I was writing for liked pirates, so I needed to have pirates in there. And she liked magical things, and she liked old books, and she liked Victorian stuff. So I was just kind of spinning stuff together. She had a little dog, so I put the little dog in the story and uh, basically sent off a chapter a week to her where she was staying. And at the end of it, I thought, dang, you know, considering that I was just whipping this up off the top of my head, it, it wasn't too bad. So I said, Emma, would it be okay if I sold your book? And she said, yes. <laughs> so, you know, off it went to my agent. Madeline, could you talk about building the, the Regency, uh, your, your altered Regency? Because that's a, that's a fairly daunting task. I mean, that's a time, I mean, we all seen Jane Austen and we, we have some familiarity with it, but the, the, the ver- your version of it is a lot different than Jane Austen, isn't it? Well, it's not really, I mean, initially it was not an alternate, it was just a straight story and I had a good deal of response from my first readers saying, well, if you just, I don't entirely buy that this could happen, and I could bring in proof that there were women operating in 
not quite this way, but in similar ways at the time. But there's a kind of, the word dude supposedly was in use in Regency England. But if I used the word dude, everybody <laughs> and her aunt would put the book down and say, dude, you know, that's just done uh -huh. work for me. Yep. So there are, there are times when you simply have to sort of go, okay, if enough people tell me that they're not getting this the way it is, I need to think of a new way to approach it. And I thought that by making Queen Charlotte queen, that this would give just a little more of, uh, regent rather, a little more of a, a blessing to this bizarre female enterprise that I had going there. I also, it is not entirely clear from the snippet I read tonight, but there is um, a um, custom that I declared that fallen women would change na their names and essentially take uh, noms d'amour. Uh, mm -hmm. So that she is no longer Sarah Brereton. She would be, if she had become a prostitute, she would be called Mrs. Whatever. And most of them take, Marianne Touchwell probably had a prosaic name. <laughs> oh, and, and no, no, some of the names that I, in the first book that I came up with, I look at and think, oh my God, I, should my children read these? Jeez. Um, but there are, usually the names are something to do with what, they do, uh, and they're all Mrs., Mrs. Touchwell, uh, whatever. Miss Tolerance will no longer use her family name because her family cast her out, but she will, she did not want to become Mrs. because she is not Mrs. And so, and she chose, and people keep giving her shit in the various books. Why would you choose a name like Tolerance? Might as well call yourself Dishwater. But, <laughs> Tolerance is her name. Um, but the actual, most of the history is straight Regency, the um, materials, the stuff that they're working with, the customs. In, in a sense, this book grew out of a book that my editor, when I was writing Regency, sent me, which just pissed me off incredibly. It was a Regency, and it had the most fabulous premise. A young woman of good family rather like Harriet Vane in the Peter Whimsey books, goes off and lives with a man without benefit of clergy because it's this high-minded philosophical thing and neither of them believes in marriage and yada, 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 and he dies. And he leaves her a house in the town where they both grew up, where everyone knows that she is ruined and ruined at that time had a distinct economic meaning. You were, as Miss Tolerance says at one point in one of the books, good for none of the commonplace uses of well-bred young women. You were, you couldn't get a normal job because you might taint the, peop the women around you with your icky ruinedness. Um, it, uh, part of the thing, most of these, book, these books start with a little homily about this stuff because most of us snicker when we think about that, but it was true. So this book that pissed me off was about this young woman whose lover had left her a house in the town where they had both grown up. And within you know the first couple of chapters, women are crossing the street to avoid her contagion and icky, icky, icky. And by about the fourth chapter in, you would have thought that she had been caught necking in a car and she forgets this, and only the meanies and the stick in the muds are upset about this. And 
I remembered thinking, I was so excited at the beginning of this book because I thought, wow, she's really painted herself into a corner. How's she going to get herself out? And the way she got herself out was to forget everything that we know about the sociology of the period. And mm -hmm. that completely enraged me. So part of the reason that I wrote these books was I wanted to write about a woman who had transgressed and was living with the consequences of that transgression. And even she herself feels that she is ruined. She still feels, she has enough of her sort of upper middle class upbringing to feel that she is damaged goods and to feel that she will, she'll never marry, she'll never have children. All of the things that she expected to be part of her life when she was young are lost to her because she did this one impulsive thing when she was 16. And most of the time, she doesn't really worry about it too much. But every now and then, it just totally bums her out. Well, uh, you know what I'd like each of you to talk about? Maybe you can talk about first in turn, Cage, with this book and maybe with your um, company books, is keeping track. When you, when you start to tweak history, it's a chain reaction, and it can kind of get away from you. So could you talk about keeping track of, of this, you know, thing you've done? Oh, my God, what, wait, 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 wait. Do you, do you have, like, databases, and or is there, like, a, a wall of your house that's filled with newspaper articles? Oh, yes, but um, I don't actually – the company series I did not tweak with history. I interested uh, – every single thing that happens in the company novels um, is set – in this universe. They're not alternate, alternate universe books. Um, I have written a couple of alternate universe uh, short stories. And that really was like, well, okay, you've cut this thread, and now it's all unraveling here. What would be the consequences of this? And that, I had one where I wrote um, a story about Shakespeare solving a mystery, a murder. But it's in an England where um, the queen is, you know, even in her 60s, painted blue and naked. And the, the, she defeated her sister Mary in, uh, in combat, except her name wasn't Mary. And um, it all goes back to the fact that Julius Caesar heeded the warning and didn't go to the forum that day and wasn't assassinated. Um, Anthony was instead. And Britain sort of never, um, you know, Britain was able to continue. I forget all the details because this is thousands of years of history. But his son Caesarian did take the throne of Egypt and continue, the dynasty continued there. And that eventually um, they got into monotheism and were, you know, following up on it with an incredible zeal and conquering and, and despoiling people. And I think the Roman Empire had kind of, you know, simmered down in kind of the way that it did. And um, Byzantium had never happened, but there were still a lot of Greeks, you know, running around doing Greek things. And uh, I really had to sort of, you know, okay, you know, who's a power here? Who's done what? Who hasn't done what? What would the consequences of this be? And it really, it took some, some charting. Um, you know, the fact that there would be a lot of, you know, even in the year 1600, um, there would still, there would be pagan temples in various sections in London where you could go. And the, the genesis of that story actually um, 
involved an actual historical uh, incident where there was a, a couple of con men that roamed the Greek world um, promoting the worship of the great god Glycon. And Glycon was essentially a sock puppet. <laughs> he was supposed to He's be the flying spaghetti monster. He was the kind of he was the son of supposed to be the son of Asclepius. And what they would do is they'd come into a town where there was a ruined temple of Apollo, and they would have an egg that they'd very carefully hollow out and put a little baby snake in, and bury it somewhere. And then the next morning they'd come, you know, look, look, I had a dream, I had a dream, I had a prophecy. The goddess Apollo told me to dig here, and look, look, it is the god Glycon. You know, and they'd, he has to go into the warmth now, you know, but there will be miracles. People watch, watch this space, you know, and then, then they'd bring out a bow constrictor, you know, because there were trade routes with, uh, with India, you know, and they'd show, look, he's grown, you know, the living God, touch him, touch him. And then, you know, within a couple of days more, it's like, he's now too big for you to see anything but his head, but you can come into the temple and worship and he will prophesy to you. And what you went into the temple and saw was this big head you know, and a, um, a cloth body that would be moved, but because it was up on a platform and the temple was dark, you couldn't see the details very, very well. And this is, this is history. This actually wow. happened. I think Alan Moore has said he's a devotee of the god Glycon. <laughs> Glycon the sock puppet. So would be. the story I have involves that. I sort of wound it in. Well, that sounds uh, very difficult to keep track of all that. Well, now... Madeline, tell us about how you keep track of your stuff. I well, mean. I cheat a little bit. Um, what, a writer cheating? Good heavens. Um, I, to some extent, because there was, even at that point, the monarchy had fairly limited um, ability to muck around with things. Um, the idea that I had was basically things proceed almost entirely the way they did. The only real difference is in some of the political infighting. So that you know, once I, I have pieces of paper and charts and files and I get confused between which file is the most recent and then I have to go through and read them all and then I wonder why I didn't become a dentist. Um, and so there's a, a good deal of keeping track of mostly which version of the universe I'm thinking of at any given mm -hmm. moment. That's actually harder than keeping track of the history. But uh, you know, I, have, I have lists of what happened to the various princes. The second book hinges to some extent on uh, some events in the life of the Duke of Cumberland, who was fairly well down on the succession line, but was a really nasty piece of work. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. he, was, he was an unpleasant fellow. And I point that out. Um, I'm a little bit of a fan of the Prince of Wales. I think that he had kind of a hard, hard row because nothing he did was um, appreciated by his father. And if you want to see a real sort of graduate level psychological study of family dysfunction, look at the family of George III, who the, his very favorite child, the child he loved most, was the child who died at two who died before he could like develop ideas and think and stuff like that. Anyway, in, in terms of keeping track of all this, um, each book I work out a slightly different system and I usually have to go back to the book before and mm -hmm. what the hell did I say here? And there's not just the history but also um, 
poor Mrs. Bird and has some things going on uh, that she doesn't have any idea about She that are going to show up. If the third book ever comes out, they'll show up in the third book. Um, and so there are other things that I have to keep track of in terms of who's doing what to whom with what blunt instrument. But I think probably it's not any more bizarre than any other sort of series process of tracking. Do you ever have moments where you go back and look and think, oh, damn it, why did I put that in there? Now it's restricted this particular plot line. Actually, more often I look at it and go, God, did I put that in? That was so smart. How did I know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, that was that was really cool because then I can do this and this. That's really, really cool. I haven't hit that point. If it gets much more con convoluted, though, I'm sure I will. Yeah, yeah. I occasionally would find where I'd said that a certain character was in a certain country at a certain time, and it's like, oh, then I can't write a story about him being over here, you know. Yeah, well, it's also the sort of thing of uh, I sometimes look at the various characters and I'm trying to remember yeah. eye color, <laughs> religious <laughs> preference, um, hair curly straight, and I think of Rick Blaine and Casablanca saying, are my eyes really blue? And they, yeah, well, I don't know, when they first draft they were. I'm not sure where they are right now. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first draft, um, second draft, could you guys talk about uh, drafting, putting these together in, in stages? I mean, you know, presumably these don't uh, spring forth from the forehead of Zeus. Oh, that would be so nice. <laughs> yeah. You just bring an ax and you'll get a novel. <laughs> um, Michael Candell, who was my editor at Harcourt, is a lovely man. One of the best pieces of advice he ever gave me is when you write something, and you finish it in that flush of victory and like, God damn, I finished it. It's genius. It's gold. Don't. Cram it in an envelope and mail it off. Do not do that. Put it on a shelf and let it sit there for six months. And it's like, but I can't do that. It's a work of genius. And he said, no, do it. And go back and look at it in the six months and reread it. And you will be so grateful you didn't mail it out because you'll see all the flaws that were in it that you didn't see when you were, you know, you, this was your baby that you'd just given birth to. And he was absolutely right. Um, it was one of the wisest things I've ever heard from anybody. Given my, you know, writing pace, because I now have to pay the rent with it because I got laid off from my job, my day job, um, I don't often have the leisure to wait six months, but I've found that if I set it aside once it's done and work on something else, by the time I go back to it, I have enough distance emotionally to see, oh, wow, I go on for like paragraphs and paragraphs here where I don't need to. I'm saying exactly the same he thing here that I'm saying over here. This character is totally flat and you have no idea why anyone would be interested in them. And so I immediately start rewriting. And I used to think it would be terrible to have to rewrite, you know, a single word of my genius. and it's actually kind of neat, you know, because you've already done, you've finished the damn thing. Now you can just go in and, and put little curly cues on it, you know, or rip out sections that are not so good. Yeah, I, um, I have a workshop that I work with, although lately we have been honoring our workshopitude more in the breach than the observance. Um, life happens. But uh, so what I do is I will submit chapters to the workshop and I will get their critiques and I will take these stacks. By the time I'm done, if it's a 20 chapter book, because I've got five different versions of markups of each damn chapter, 
And then I don't look at them as the critiques come in, I nod and I make notes, and then when the whole book is over, I start at chapter one and I look at everybody's con comments and some of them you look at and go, oh, that's right, you're the comma Nazi. All right, well, you know, <laughs> you have your belief about commas, and I have my belief about commas, and you're wrong, so there. And then there are others where I think, well, that's interesting. And I have a sort of general rule of thumb that if three people in my workshop all say the same thing, that I have to pay attention to that because it may not bother me, but obviously it, I'm not just writing for me, I'm writing for other people. Um, and so I go through and I do a second pass. And by the time I get to the end of the book, it has been probably a month or more, and I get to the end and it's all sort of, if not brown new, it has that sort of hallucinatory haze over it. I remember this, where did this come from? And then I will go through it one more time, usually, to sort of potch around. But the thing is, when I'm composing, there are all these sort of like, I have no fucking idea, pardon me, what to do next. But I know what's going on over there. I'll write that scene. And so there are times when there'll be four chapters in the middle that I haven't written yet because I knew it was going on in chapter 12. So I skipped to chapter 12, right to the end of the book, by which time suddenly I understand a little more about what has to be in between chapters eight and 12. And I go back and write that and then sort of make it all play well together. An awful lot of it is sort of, and I do find this is not a testimony to my innate brilliance or something, would that it were, that there are often things that little bombs that my unconscious has left in the book that I can suddenly find and go, oh, then that means this ties to that. And if I just sort of nudge that that way, then this all works. Oh, that's cool. Okay, fine. Um, so it's, and then there has never been a book of mine that came out in print in multiple copies where I did not find at least a few places where I went, oh, oh, I wish I'd gone over that. Oh, one more time. So mm -hmm. I'm, mm -hmm. I have to feel that this is like, you know, one of those um, Persian rugs where they leave a couple of flaws in there because only God is perfect, because I sure ain't. Um, in the Hotel Under the Sand, the first editor from whom we bought the book back, because he was an idiot, one of the things he did was take out every single semicolon. Really? Every because children don't like semicolons or something? I don't know, you know, and, and the I, semicolon is, is the, it a thing best of the damn past? piece of I was convent educated. You know, the nuns taught me to use semicolons. Robert Louis Stevenson, and I think it's the final line of Treasure Island, has no less than four semicolons in one sentence. That's a man for you. That's a man. By God. <laughs> I love me my semicolons. Yeah. I was also taught new grammar. So mm -hmm. I'm, you and I are like polar opposites because I was, some people have new math, I had new grammar. So I have a deeply felt, almost emotional concept of how grammar works, but I can't explain it to anybody. It's <laughs> really weird. Well, I mean, not only were you taught new grammar, you're writing in a time that's not of our time, so your characters can't at least say dude. <laughs> well, they, they, they could, actually. They could but. say dude, but I won't let them because that would be just, it would be opening a can of worms. There is a fabulous book, and now because I'm of that age, I'm beginning to blank on the name. It's, it's a work of the slang 
of the period, and it's wonderful. The, one of the things that I discovered when I uh, was looking through it was that there was no term for lesbian. Now, there, I'm sure there were terms for lesbian. There were all sorts of terms for gay men, none for women. And so I finally invented one. And I'm sure there were terms, but I couldn't find one easily. Sapphic. Sapphic, but I wanted a more sort of gutter-level street kind of thing. Yeah, the gutter-level people aren't yeah. going to be using Sapphic. Yeah, Sapphic was a... a, a I didn't actually think they had a gutter one. Uh, well, they may have. I mean, there's that... Well, what, so, did you, what did you call them? Oh, I called them she-mollies. A molly was a male homosexual, oh. so... She oh. Molly, you know, what the hell. Okay. The second book has birching houses in it. I'm, I'm having <laughs> so much fun with this thing. You know, and, and it also has a gold finder, which is the name that they gave to the men who would come out and clean out your privy. Um, who complains <laughs> bitterly because people don't take care of their privies, and it's a terrible thing. Um, as I said, part of the thing that I love about the Regency is if you get past the sort of tidy... Uh, one of the things I didn't like about Regency romances generally is that they're so tidy. And it wasn't a tidy age. I used to have people come up to me when I was writing romances and say, oh, don't you wish you lived then? <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, okay, nearsighted, asthmatic, I'd be, and, and, and you know, my, on my father's side, you know, Russian peasant girl. I would have died of a wasting disease by the time I was 14. I would not have been the Duchess's daughter. I would not have gone to the ball. I would not have been wearing the cool diaphanous robes. I would have been in a box if I was lucky. Otherwise, just you know, thrown in a ditch. And so I, the contrarian in me, which is a streak about yay wide, loves the idea of slinging shit at Jane Austen, not at Miss Austen, because she's fabulous and I adore her, but at the notion that this was a lovely antiseptic place where you wore pretty clothes and, and exchanged barbed witticisms. And I like me my barbed witticisms. I'm very big on the barbed witticisms, but I also want to see the sickness and the real stuff. The Brontes. Um, yes! <laughs> you want some sickness. Oh, mm. but. Go ahead. Okay, no, I was just saying that the Brontes are a good example of stories that don't always work out well. Oh, yeah. You know, that aren't tidy. In fact, Wuthering Heights is, is miserably untidy in that respect. But I mean, a great book. Mm. And even in Jane Eyre, she does get Mr. Rochester in the end, but he has to go be blind and practically crippled. Well, he has to be punished. He has to be punished for his behavior. Sins. Yeah. Um, but in your, your standard badly written Regency, you know, Mr. So-and-so can be a, a, you know, a, a wild buck and do all kinds of bad things before he's suddenly reformed by his love for... The love of a good woman. Oh. Yeah. And then he Was there turns. ever a more pernicious myth than the rake being reformed by the love of a good woman? I fell for that one in my 20s and ugh, ugly, ugly. Um, it, it's... It's a, a, the Regency is a particularly gorgeous period to, to play around with because everything is happening. But uh, I think any history that I'm working in the Italian Middle Ages right now, which in terms of research almost don't exist unless you're a member of the clergy. Uh, but even then, there's a tendency to sort of, if you're not a member of the clergy or the upper class, you don't exist. And I'm trying to write about 
people just above the peasantry. And the research is killing me because, you know, I try to find out, okay, you don't call someone senor, which means my lord. So what do you call him? You meet a guy and you say, hello, Bubba. <laughs> Maybe not so much. And you know, so I, I, okay, hello, brother, or hello, uncle, or something like that. This requires a good deal of invention. And sometimes I wish I wrote, or I, maybe I will at some point, you know, some involved fantasy world where I could make everything up and I didn't have to find the actual way it was so that I could corrupt it. You've created a fantasy world. Are you happy with it? Is it that easy? It's not easy because if you create a fantasy world and it you want it to be any good at all, you have to invent the entire world. You mm. have to know its history, its economy, what do the people do for a living? Um, I've written a fantasy series. Uh, there's a couple of novels, The Anvil of the World, The House of the Stag, and I've got another one coming out sometime in a year or two, which is probably going to be called The Bird of the River. And for the most part, all of my characters are poor to just above. And part of that is a reaction against, you know, the story where it's always a peasant boy who's actually the prince, you know, and it's always lords and ladies, and it's never the guy who runs a hotel down in the corner. So um, this has kind of forced me to know a little bit more about how the world works and to draw up a map and know that, well, okay, you've got these people over here, and they worship iron, so their culture has to develop it along a certain way, and all of their churches are forges, and all of their priests are blacksmiths, and you have to go, you know, it takes me off on this entire um, tangent, but also, you know, they've got a maritime culture, they've got shipping, they've got trading, and I have to invent the entire thing um, and make it consistent, you know, with the other books. Um, the books in my series are not in a series. They're all freestanding. So there are different characters, you know, and I have to go look, you know, how did I describe this city in this book? You know, where was it exactly? You know, so it doesn't contradict that, well, here I've got it on the seacoast, and here I've got it in an inland mountain range. And um, it has to be consistent, it has to be good. I mean, Tolkien worked for years and years and years and only actually published the Lord of the Rings in its, the version we have now because his publisher basically said, give it to me now. You know, but he wasn't ready to let it go yet. And he, I mean, he invented the languages, he invented the history, all that stuff. You know, so much so that his heirs have, you know, made a mint off lost stories, half-completed stories, notebook stories, and so forth. And, things scribbled um, on cocktail napkins. Yeah, things yeah. scribbled on cocktail napkins. And so, you know, he, he was the first and the best in terms of an epic heroic fantasy writer. But he made this huge, you know, you can complain about Tolkien sometimes. Some of his, I mean, socialists will get furious with him. Johnny Manville, you know, because it's, it's all about kings and it's all about oppressing the people and, and this, that, and the other thing. You know, which is pulling their forelock. Yeah, yeah, you know, they're all, Master Frodo, sir. But, um, you know, I, I think one ought to give the guy a break because he wrote, he was an Oxford professor who wasn't particularly worldly and he wrote about his era. I mean, he wrote about the things he was used to. Um, people will scream about C.S. Lewis putting, you know, how could you made your villains dark and Orientalist? And it's because, well, both he and Tolkien came from a culture where they were still fighting about, the, you know, the Crusades 
you know, they were still classy. And who ever thought the Crusades were going to come back and bite us in the ass? I ask you. <laughs> um, so they were still representing things in those terms, and there was no conscious racism. It was just sort of that an inherited the, tradition. Yeah. yeah. So um, try reading the Baroness Orxy as an adult. Oh, yeah. Holy moly. <laughs> Oh, just so many of those great oh, old books. You read them baby. and you go, oh. I had to adapt the Scarlet Pimpernel for a comic book, and I hadn't read it since I was 12. And when I was 12, I read it utterly uncritically. And first of all, it's a staggeringly static book. But the last third of it is spent with Chauvelin riding alongside the Pimpernel, who is dressed up as a Hasidic Jew. And every appalling adjective you can think of is applied not to the Pimpernel, of course, but to the Jew. You know, the, the smelly, dirty, awful, evil, you know, money-grubbing. And you just sit there going, how did I miss this? I was 12. I wasn't stupid. How did I miss this? It's stunning. And it's, it's I mean, Gilbert Chesterton, mm-hmm. you know, whom, whom I love, and yet, boy, on the subject of Jews, you know, you just, oh, man. To give him credit, when he did wise up to what was going on in Europe, you know, he sort of, no, this is wrong. You know, we shouldn't be exterminating them. This is immoral. And, and he kind Even of... Even if they're Jews, this is wrong. Yeah, yeah you know. <laughs> but, uh, but some of his stuff in the 20s is so gratuitously bad. And you just, you just think, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, they were just repeating what everybody else said in the dining halls and in the dormitories and over the back fences. And you just have to say, okay, they were products of their time. You know, and they let's, didn't know anybody. Yeah, they didn't know anybody. Let's My grandmother, when I was about 14, we were driving down the street, and she saw a couple of little black kids wrestling, and she said, oh, look at those little pickaninnies. And I'm a product of Greenwich Village in the 60s. I, <laughs> Granny! And she, after a moment, she said, leave me alone. I don't know any better. <laughs> and it took me years to, to realize that this was a very insightful comment. At the time, I said, But she was a girl who had grown up in Tipton, Iowa, and then in Kearney, Nebraska in the late 1800s when it was not an insult. It was just, you know, oh, the sky is blue. Those are pickaninnies, you know, what have you. And she had seen men go from not being able to fly to walking on the moon. This is a, a significant piece of time travel. And she didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. And then you have to just sort of cut a certain amount of slack and be glad that we don't live back then. There's a problem too, though, when you're writing historical novels because you can't make all your characters socially conscious oh, 21st God. century in that respect. <laughs> One of the Oops. things that I hate yeah. most is the 21st or 20th century protagonist in a a, a 17th century or what have you suit. Uh, it just yes. drives me absolutely bananas, and I keep fighting against that. I hope successfully, but I'm never sure. This is this is why Patrick O'Brien is better than C.S. Forrester. Oh, absolutely. Horatio absolutely. Hornblower is essentially a 20th century man in an early 19th century costume, whereas Stephen Matron and Jack Aubrey are authentic early 19th century characters. Mm-hmm. They absolutely are, and he does it without gratuitous racism. Mm-hmm. So it can be done. That's right. Well, you know, it strikes me that one of the things that when I'm listening to you, you're both kind of, your your books are, are kind of a reaction against 
the Regency romances and noir wrapped it to kind of into one. Well, uh, it's an embrace of noir. I would say it's an reaction. And Regency romance, I love the era. I just didn't think that it was always going to turn out happily ever after for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you have some reactions against stuff in yours as well. I mean, the, the, the company novels are, you know, re, completely repaint history. In a sense. In a sense. I, you know, when you finally get your little moment on the pulpit and you're going to get your book published, and by God, you're going to stand up there and say some things about how you feel life should be, and and you're going to stab a few sacred cows, you know, if you, you know, and that's a particularly dumb way to proceed, really, because, you know, often one doesn't know as much as one thinks one does. Um, but there is a, I know with uh, In the Garden of Eden, I was rebelling a bit against bodice ripper romances, particularly the kind set in Elizabethan England. Um, because, you know, I mean, I was a teacher at the Living History Center for a number of years. I taught Elizabethan English as a, as a stage language for 20 years and counting. And, you know, I knew a lot about the era, and people would say, again, don't you wish you'd lived back then? And I say, Go to the nearest old cemetery and count all the little gravestones of babies who died before they were five. You know, and ask me if you want to live in an era without modern medicine. Um, but I wanted Don't to... Don't we do that now? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Uh, things have gone down a Unless bit. we're members of Senate. Yeah. But um, I kind of wanted to show the somewhat grubbier and, and nastier side of Elizabethan England as far as one can, and show that in this particular book, the heroine who is an immortal who, you know, has been augmented and educated, and she has a 24th century point of view. Unfortunately, she is still at heart a medieval Spanish teenager, and uh, because that is when she was born. And she meets an Anabaptist who is, you know, just a raging font of, of heretical ideas that she finds, you know, that's absolutely, yes, yes, that's good. That's a good attitude. You know, and, and they fall in love, and then, of course, he gets burned at the stake. You know, which is the inevitable, that's how it really would have happened, kids. Um, but I love the character too much and brought it back. <laughs> Ooh, through, you through some, you darlings. And that's why it's science fiction, yeah. not history. <laughs> because he had more to say, and he wouldn't shut up, so... Have you burned anybody at the stake lately? No. I, haven't, I don't think I've ever burned anybody at the stake. I've run people through. Um, and the, the structure of Point of Honor is to some extent mapped on the Maltese Falcon. And so anybody who remembers the Maltese Falcon can have some idea of how Miss Tolerance's relationship with the Mary, er- Mary Astor character <laughs> as it were, in the book ends. And yet I've had people go, oh, but why couldn't they live together? Why couldn't (laughs) they get married? Well, one, he's not as nice as you thought he was. For And that's lined out. Two, he is significantly above her class-wise, and he's a politician. Three, no, it wouldn't happen. It just would not happen. And th- but but could you? It's not a romance. It's That's not what the point is. And part of the reason that unfortunately the books 
foundered it, they did very well in hardcover, but they died in mass market, is because Tor, bless their hearts, well-meaning as they were, packaged them with a sort of romancy kind of cover. Mm. And they got shelved in romance where nobody knew what the hell to do with them. And so they died. So they got brilliantly reviewed and so forth and sold through cleanly and hardcover and went out in mass market. And now nobody at Barnes & Noble wants to know that I exist. This is a cautionary tale. Unfortunately, I've worked in publishing long enough yeah. to know that it is sadly not alone my cautionary tale. But these are not romances. Um, I wasn't interested. I don't mind writing something that is romantic. I am very big on romantic. I am not so big on happy endings because I think that happy endings are, they happen, but they are they don't end. hard work. And they don't end. Yeah. Um, I'm always interested to know what happens after Cinderella and the prince ride off because I'll bet that relationship was rocky. As my eight-year-old daughter, who has been raised at her mother's knee and is now 19, said, this is a stupid story. He wants her because she's pretty, and she wants him because he's a, a prince. What are they going to talk about? <laughs> my work here is done. <laughs> my, uh, one of my other nieces, um, I thought I'd show her the Franco Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet, which mm. made me cry my oh, eyes yes. out when I was 14 because it's just so beautiful and so sad. And she was, I guess, about eight. <laughs> and we put it on and she watched it. She's going to get that boy killed. <laughs> this is stupid. This is stupid. <laughs> and she just she flew into this rage because she saw all the holes in the story that, of course, all the grown-ups are trying to tell them, kids, you're not for each other, really. You know, She should have married Paris and shut up. You know, and and it's it. It was a wake up call to me that hmm, youth is not always romantic or or, or stupid. My or children, young, rather. My younger daughter watching Sense and Sensibility when she was eight or nine and was you know, six or seven and was home from school with a cold, and I'm sitting there thinking, how much of this is she really getting? And I paused the DVD at one point. We were talking about it, and she said, so. What you're saying is that if Marianne keeps riding around in a carriage with that guy by by themselves, she gets kind of like sex cooties. Uh, you know, there have been doctoral dissertations that would have been a lot shorter if they had come up with the term <laughs> sex cooties show. because there it is, folks. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> It's a band. They're playing at the Café du Nord tonight. It's the sequel to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Oh, God. Uh, there, there is one coming. Yes. Oh. Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. Okay. Any, any questions from the audience? So what's happening with the third Sarah Tolerance book that we all want to read? Ellen wants to know what's happening with yes, the third Sarah Tolerance book. I don't know. Um, Tor unfortunately felt that they said, because I have a long-standing relationship with him, well, if you really want us to publish it, we'll publish it, but um, Barnes & Noble doesn't want to see anything with your name on it. And, you know, it's like, you know, okay, well, I don't really want to send my child out to get beaten up by thugs. So at the moment, I have three-quarters of a third Sarah Tolerance novel done. I have a quarter of a fourth Sarah Tolerance novel done. And I am 
finishing an histor- a straight historical for tour because I owe them a book, and I'm looking for probably a small press publisher for um, the third book. Because uh, so, I, I think there's a market out there. There are people who legitimately love Miss Tolerance. It's not just me, uh, but and this is, unfortunately, I would love to take this personally and gnash my teeth, but I have seen too much about how sausage is made to feel this is personal. It's just one of those things that happened. If I may recommend, um, Small House has been very good to me. I've been able to juggle them. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff that Tor won't take, um, a lot of the smaller houses are. And you know, they win awards, and they put together really good books, and they know how to get the books in the hands of reviewers. And you actually can make an, a nice you know, amount of money. And they produce a really beautiful book, too. Well, I, I've, I've admired it. Like yes. Tachyon. Yes. Like Tachyon. Uh, we've got Tachyon and Golden Griffin as well. And yeah. There's, 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 I know they're out there. It's partly, uh, the other thing is that in the middle of all this, I really need to fire my agent, who is an oh. absolutely lovely woman who seems to have become feral or something and, and just disappeared <laughs> off the face of the earth. That happened to me once. Yeah. yeah. That, that's another of those stories that is not as rare as one would like. The real side of being a writer. Yeah. It's glamorous, kids. It's unsavory. <laughs> <laughs> well, you both had, have had entertaining, shall we say, experiences with publishers who have kind of uh, mishandled what is obviously brilliant series. I, awesome. I mean, so t- tell, tell us, uh, I mean, uh, talk about this, this mass market thing. This seems like... Oh, how does this how does this happen? I mean, there's so many historical mysteries out there. Um, how the hell could they put them in tournament of romances? What the hell is the well, matter with them? Well, part of it. Okay, I disclaimer. I was Tom Doherty's assistant for four years. I worked Ooh. in the production area. Tom Doherty is one of my favorite humans in the whole world. Okay. Tor is a small company. It is like a dysfunctional family. He was the dysfunctional daddy, and in his wake, I would sort of flutter along by making everybody play nicely together. This was, I have a degree in theater. I did stage management. This was the perfect job for me in many ways. Uh, It just got to the point where I didn't have enough hands or tentacles or something to keep all the plates spinning. But, um, so I am am very fond of the people at Tor. None of this was done maliciously. I turned my book into Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who was my editor on The Stone War, which is the book in which I blew up New York, which is a little different from blowing up Regency England, but hey. And um, Patrick looked at it, and he loved it, and he said, this is brilliant, this is great, I want to buy another one, and I don't think I should be the editor because I don't really entirely feel that I I have a handle on it. So he gave it to a young woman named Anna Genoese who started Tor's paranormal line. And Anna is an absolute sweetie, but I think that her bent was toward romance and that she skewed it that way. The sales force was partly because I had this relationship with Tor and partly because they liked the covers, was very enthusiastic about the covers. It was going to be great. The books went out in hardcover and, as I said, did very well. And they bought two more and it was all going to be fabulous. And then they put them out with a cover that was, I mean, it's a hard, when I handed the first book to Patrick, I said, I'm handing you I'm handing you a pub, a publishing nightmare because how the hell are you going to qualify this? <coughs> because it's not a dessert topping or a floor wax. It's 
a Regency that isn't a romance. It's a noir that isn't 20th century. It's alternate history, but not that's not a major part of it. And probably in the history, if it had gone into the mystery section, it would have done better. Mm-hmm. It has had a good deal of class, crossover in science fiction and fantasy circles. And it got, you know, it got good review in the Romantic Times. It was, uh, the first one was a book list, best romantic books for whatever its year was. Um, so it got out there and it got noticed. But it has, the first one has a, a kind of girly cover on it. And I've, I've seen reviews on the internet saying, you know, don't be put off by the cover. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. Great. Okay. And the second one has an even more girly cover, and Tor put a label of fiction on it rather than mystery because they, they were trying to hedge their bets. And again, this was, I truly, mm. they want, any publisher in their right mind wants to sell the books. When they make a mistake, it's not because they're out there trying to scuttle your career and make you go back to working at McDonald's. It's because... Unlike the movie industry. Unlike the movie industry. <laughs> uh, it's because they really, really want Know, to do the right thing, and oops, oh well. And I'm afraid I got caught in oops, oh well, which is basically... My first book, In the Garden of Eden, it was first, um, at the same time that Harker bought it, they turned it around and sold it to uh, an English publishing house. So the first edition was actually, came out in the UK. Who was an English publishing house? Oh, Hodder and Stoughton. Oh, Okay. And they decided to go completely as romance, completely as romance. Hottered it? Um, yes, no. they did. They gave it the most romance cover. You know, I mean, embossed gold letters. Um, it might have Foil. said, love's purple passion, yeah. Um, you know, and they were pretty covers, but, you know, all the guys that I knew were like, well, I'd like to read your book, but I'd be embarrassed to be seen reading it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, the editor over there, you know, wrote me. I mean, the, the British were lovely at Holler and Stoughton. They sent me flowers on, you know, the opening day that it, it debuted and everything like that. And she yeah. told me, I'm so pleased we managed to keep the word science fiction completely off the cover. Nowhere will you see that it's science fiction. So, so Harker turned around and, and started to sell the second one to them, which is called Sky Coyote, which is the same characters about uh, 80 years later in America, dealing with the tribe of Chumash Indians on the California coast. And they offered it to Hodder and Stoughton, and their lady editor said, the English don't want to read stories about Indians. She said, I swear to God, as I live and breathe. So they bought this, the third book, and they made me change the title, and they gave me an absolutely romance sort of cover for that one, too. And that was the end of the story. How and did they sell with their romance covers? They didn't sell very well. Yeah. And to this day, I have not broken back into the British market. Um, they, don't, they don't buy my stuff. Um, they love me in Italy. They can't get enough of me in Italy. It's gone through a couple of editions in Spain. Um, well, no, a couple of editions in France and Germany. The Spanish put out an edition of In the Garden of Eden in paperback. And the cover was thus, a sports car in the foreground, a blonde with a bouffant and a gun in a cat suit 
<laughs> standing behind the sports car, and in the background behind her was the Capitol Dome of the U.S. And this is a book. <laughs> what about is this, Modesty Blaze? <laughs> You'd kind of figure it's like, you know, is this because are you mad at me because I put the Inquisition in in this story or, or what? But that was like, wow. You know, there have been worse covers, but that one takes the cake. Holy cats. Uh, I th- think we had some other questions, May. Uh. Um, I was intrigued that both of you have experience going in the theater. Mm-hmm. I have no good question to follow up with that, but can you tell us about that? Maybe? Would you ladies talk about the theater for us? I have a degree in theater, and I got out and realized that I did not have the strength of character to throw myself against a, a, a world where I was supposed to be thinner and taller and have better teeth than I do. I was not certain of our, my talent, and yet I kept coming back to it. I wound up doing stage combat, uh, first research, and then I wound up in a, a troupe that did high school visits with choreographed mayhem, doing Shakespeare scenes, and I worked at Renaissance festivals and things like that. Um, I am probably an inherently theatrical person, but um, I just didn't want to go there. And to my absolute shock and horror, both of my daughters want to act. And I, again, I keep thinking, honey, be a dentist. (laughs) Learn to do an honest trade, really. You'll be so much happier. And yet I can't really argue with them because what does mama do? So Um, I was a geeky kid that was into books and loved Shakespeare and loved Elizabethan England and just, you know, loved everything to do with with the history. But I didn't get a theater degree. I sort of ran away with the circus. I joined the Living History Center, which put on the original Renaissance Fair, because it was a big hippie love-in. And it was neat. And you had boys wearing doublets over blue jeans, which really looked sexy, actually. <laughs> and, and it was like being in a Fellini film, particularly, you know, <laughs> this is in the, the late 60s, early 70s. And it was a wonderful thing. But, but I was seduced by, in the end, into respectability in it by the fact that, yes, I actually did have an education. And I learned to speak Elizabethan as a second language. And I became one of the teachers for them because I picked it up rather easily. Um, and so I basically did that, and I worked as a stage manager, like herding cats. Um, but there's such a sense of satisfaction when all the cats go where you need them to go. Yeah, and it's like pulling teeth when you're trying to get nouveau vaudevillian, you know, acts. It's like, you have 25 minutes on the stage. When your act is over, get off the stage. Don't spend 20 minutes by the side of the stage putting your birds away and talking to people because there's people on stage trying to put on an act. You know, and you're drawing focus from them. And if this happens again, I'm going to take your damn birds and I'm going to throw them into the trees. <laughs> I had a problem with a bird trainer who had a bird, you know, performing bird act. One of them almost put out my eye one time. But in any case, um, you know, I did the... Uh, the stage managing, and I did, um, I wrote some little Elizabethan plays, which are little flawless jewels, and what the hell are you going to do with an Elizabethan flawless jewel. pastiche? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's a pastiche of an Elizabethan play, and if you know Elizabethan history, you'll get all kinds of in-jokes, but otherwise, it's totally useless. Except for at a Renaissance Fair. Yeah, except for at a Renaissance Fair. Or but. Shakespeare in Love. 
Yeah, we had a, a little traveling stage that we built on wheels, and we'd trundle it around, you know, with masks on, and we'd stand there, and we'd open it up, and we'd put on all these plays. And one time, I couldn't believe my good luck, a pair of identical twins joined the group. Oh, cool. It's just like, dudes, I can do the monogamy. No, no, no. You know, we can do, we can do a version of, 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 oh, God. In fact, I wrote them a new one. And I got, there was one where they're actually doing the mirror routine from, um, Duck soup. <laughs> but, yeah, they were slightly twisted Elizabethan plays. But um, the problem with people who put on shows like that is that they're not very money-wise, and eventually the whole big thing went down in flames, and I had to look for another, another way to deal with life. You know, fortunately, I was about 45 at that point, so I'd kind of learned to <laughs> roll with the punches. Well, one of the nice things about stage managing is it is really excellent training for any number of jobs because if you can get every if you can get the 45 person cast of a light opera on stage when they need to when you've brought them from another city and you have a hundred and five fever um, you can keep Tom Doherty in, in check it's really not that difficult yeah. uh, Tom all he needs is a cheeseburger and you know what he what he needs at that moment and everything is fine um, I, I really did love working at Tor, in part because the people who are dedicated toroids, so to speak, really <laughs> are passionate about the fact that they're putting out books. It would not. Do be they the call same. themselves that? Yes. Okay. Um, of course, uh, it's Tor. Of course, they call themselves toroids. The girls they, they really, It would not be. <laughs> Those are the ones who don't stay very long. <laughs> There, there was, there was when I started working at Tor when it was still on Twenty Third Street and it was still a kind of, hey, we've got a barn, let's put on a show oh. operation. There were definitely the people who were there for the long haul, and there were the people who kind of had come in and kept walking around looking at the rest of us with a look of sort of. Nah. And I had my first child when I was working at Tor. And then after I came back from maternity leave, I used to bring her in with me, and we set up a crib in the managing editor's office. And Tom Doherty was absolutely convinced that I would, A, that I would go into labor, like, in the middle of a staff meeting or something. And there were people who were hoping that this would happen. Tom was not one of them. But Tom also was convinced that I would leave my child, who I had labored really hard to bring into the world, lying on a floor somewhere where he would maybe turn around a corner in this tiny little office and maybe step on her. And I kept trying to explain, Tom, no, really, not going to let you kill the baby. Honestly, it's okay. But I will say that having a baby in-house is a fabulous stress reliever. People, Beth Meacham would come in after she had been on the line with a, a particularly intransigent um, agent and say, where's the baby? I need to hold the baby. Mm, mm -hmm. <sighs> better and she'd go back and you know, it's like so I felt sort of felt like I was doing a, a public service but being a stage manager juggling cats keeping your eye on 15 different things at a time is a really useful set of skills unfortunately it's also very difficult to quantify or put on a resume very true <laughs> In fact, you really want to keep Renaissance Pleasure Fair off your resume. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds a little bit, yeah. Mm. It's like, hi, my name is Crystal, you know, and I can see your aura. <laughs> Either that or it sounds a little bit like it might be one of those websites that you have to use a credit card for. And, you know. mm. Yeah. <sighs> 
I think that any other questions? Have we scared you sufficiently? You, sir. And have you ever written a character that you later wanted to get rid of but couldn't? Wants to know if you've ever written a character you wanted to get rid of but couldn't. Yeah, Mendoza. <laughs> Mendoza was Mendoza was a, a sort of a combination of me at fourteen and a fairly bratty niece I have. Not the not the one present here. She's 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 nice, but it was like the worst self centered adolescent girl who given the opportunity remains a self centered adolescent girl for three thousand years. Oh, <laughs> And as I, I said, you know, if we ever met each other in a dark alley, I'm sure she'd want to kill me. And, and I was very glad to say, bye, Mendoza. But that's the only one, really. Most of the other characters I love to the point of being unable to let them go. The character of the bellboy Winston is kind of Lewis. Um, he's based on someone I knew and loved very much who died fairly young. And... This is a way to sort of let him go on. So I stick him in places, you know, whenever I can, basically. Wow. Um, I don't know that I've ever had a character that I created and couldn't get rid of. Um, I've had characters that I killed, and people have written me letters who said, how could you kill that? My niece has still not forgiven me for having killed off a character in The Stone War. Um, if you're going to blow up New York, then people are going to die, and there were casualties. and Stuff happens. Stuff happens. Um, but no, I don't think I've ever, if somebody really annoys me, I can kill them. It, it's so much better than real life. So don't make your characters immortal. Okay. I, I will, things to do today, don't make characters immortal. I think I can do that. I think we're going to wrap it up for tonight. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us, and uh, we'll be back next month. Hey, thank We've you. We've had Madeline Robbins and Cage Baker. Give them a hand. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.